0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 115th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we'll talk about the GOP convention and COVID-19 with journalists Colleen Haggerty and Versha Sharma. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 28th, 2020, there are 24,554,491 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 24,266,662 reported yesterday of those 5,892,779 are in the United States. That's up from 5,843,293 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 181,265 deaths reported in the U.S. from COVID-19, and that's up from 180,380 reported yesterday. Another day almost at the rate of 1,000 deaths day to day over this week within the span of the GOP Convention, 3,389 deaths, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now, and this will also harken back to discussion we had last week about the Democratic Convention, Headline, I Feel As If He Was Robbed, Maryvale Family Angry Over Father's COVID-19 Death by Emily Wilder. This appeared in the Arizona Republic July 10th. Mourners stood scattered among gravestones, faces masked and downturned, giving a wide radius around the white casket where Deacon Jose Garza stood and eulogized Mark Anthony Urquiza. Rakiza died on June 30th at the age of 65 from complications due to COVID-19, leaving behind his daughter Kristen, his life partner Brenda, and the entire community of Tolleson, where he was born and raised. The pallbearers waited until everyone dispersed, however, to lower the casket into the ground beside his parents' graves. Since new precautionary measures to stop the spread of COVID-19 have not only limited attendance to 50, but also restricted funeral goers from witnessing the burial. It wasn't the send-off that Kristen Urquiza thought her father deserved. The amount of people that wanted to be here but couldn't is overwhelming, she said. It absolutely breaks my heart to know that this man, who was so beloved by so many people for 65 years, isn't able to get a proper send-off. This grief at her father's death and inadequate farewell, as well as her anger at what she believes were policy failures that directly caused his unnecessary death, compelled Kristen Urquiza to invite Governor Doug Ducey to the funeral. She had wanted to show Ducey that the Arizonans who have lost their lives to the new coronavirus are not just numbers. They are people like my dad who have entire families and communities behind them that are mourning, she said. Handfuls of people mingled six feet or more apart around Arkeza's grave site, sharing memories of the man they fondly referred to as Blackjack for his lifelong love of the eponymous card game. He was the life of the party. Throwing massive celebrations every year for his birthday, said Gary Fendrick, who knew Urquiza for 35 years. When he sang karaoke, Fendrick grinned and recounted he wasn't very good, but he always sold it. Daughter Kristen added, my father was kind of like the West Valley mayor in a way. Kristen found her father was dying on her drive to Phoenix from her home in San Francisco. I had to take the phone call at a gas station on the side of the highway that his heart was failing, she said. That was how she spoke to her father for the last time with him sedated and alone, except for the nurse who held up the phone so that his family over FaceTime could be with him virtually as he took his last breaths. Herkiza became ill on June 11 and tested positive for COVID-19 the next day. Five days later, he told his life partner, Brenda, that he needed to go to the hospital. He was kept on a high oxygen treatment for 10 days, his condition steadily declining before he was moved to the ICU and put on a ventilator. He was gone four days later on June 30th. He had no underlying health conditions, according to his daughter. When Ducey allowed businesses to open back up on May 15th, she said, my dad was completely under the impression that it was safe to resume activities as normal. Her mother added, his friends called, come on, we're going to have a few drinks, or we're going to go do karaoke. You know, he just couldn't stay away. Ducey closed bars again on June 29th, the day before Mark Urquiza died. Dad's death was completely unnecessary and wouldn't have happened had we acted quickly and swiftly in a way that prioritized public health, his daughter said. She also said she is enraged by the disproportionate effects the pandemic is having on communities of color around the country. Tolleson is majority Hispanic and working class, as is Maryvale. Rikiza's father was an immigrant from Durango, Mexico, and his mother was a first-generation Mexican-American. Following her father's funeral, Kristen Urquiza traveled to downtown Phoenix, accompanied by her mother and her partner, Christine Keeves, to set up a candle-lit vigil outside the Arizona Capitol. Governor Ducey has blood on his hands, Kristen Urquiza repeated to the press. Kristen Urquiza is using her grief and fury to draw attention to the stake, and she hopes affect change. She has told her father's story to NBC News and raised more than $30,000 for the GoFundMe to cover his funeral costs and start a campaign to spread information about COVID-19. I will not allow him to be just another number, another death, she said. I'm calling on people across the state as well as people across the country to come forward with your story to put faces and names to the lives that we have lost so that not only Governor Ducey but the Trump administration takes this crisis as a crisis so that there are no more deaths. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today, and I am really excited to speak to my two guests today about the GP convention and politics and COVID-19. Colleen Haggerty is a freelance journalist telling narrative stories through video, print, and social mediums. Much of her work reflects how global communities are reckoning with our changing climate, social dynamics, technologies, and politics. You can find her bylines across BBC News, outputs, and on Vox, High Country News, US News and World Report, Business Insider, and others. She also has a weekly newsletter about disasters. I hope we can hear a little bit about that. Versha Sharma is the senior correspondent at Now This. Versha oversaw all political coverage at Now This during the 2016 elections and since then has been on the Trump administration beat, including covering his response to COVID 19. She's also been covering the presidential election in depth and recently interviewed several different DNC speakers, from Senator Elizabeth Warren to Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Versha has worked in digital and political journalism for more than 10 years, including at MSNBC and Talking Points Memo prior to Now This. Colleen and Versha, welcome to COVID Calls.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation there is looking like today. So Versha, can I start with you?
2: Yeah, I am calling from Brooklyn, New York, where I have been all pandemic long. I have not, I have not left since March, which is very new for me. Um, thankfully, after a devastating spring, New York has been doing well. Um, in the second half of the summer. And I think the latest stat I saw was that we just had 21 straight days with a daily COVID test positivity rate below 1%. Uh, it was also the lowest single day positivity rate that we've had in months. So this is great progress that New York has had. Um, hopefully we can continue on this trajectory as uh, you know, indoor dining here is still shut down. And I think that's the next thing the governor is looking at if our rate has been low enough to potentially reopen people at reduced capacity, um, I think we should just keep doing what we're doing, but we'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so, and for a journalist who's so used to being on campaigns and doing political coverage, this must be a very strange season to be conducting things from from home or from a, a remote office, but not be on the trail,
2: huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We're going to talk about the conventions, and Colleen and I were actually both at the conventions together in 2016 um, when she was also working at Now This, which was great. But you know, we expected to be in Milwaukee last week and and Charlotte this week, and um, the Charlotte Observer actually reported this morning that of the small staff that the GOP did keep there, like four people have already tested positive for COVID-19. So I think that you know validates the Democrats going fully all virtual for their convention, not even risking it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought 2016 was the unique election. 2020 has turned out to be the weirdest one I've covered so far, for sure.
0: Colleen, let me ask you the same question, where you're calling in from and and how it's looking there, COVID-19-wise.
1: Sure, so I am calling in from Pennsylvania, which Seemingly, is getting a bit of the aftermath or the the end of Hurricane Laura. So I am apologizing off the bat that seeing some flickering lights here. Have some strong winds. So sorry if you're hearing that along with me. Um, in terms of COVID nineteen, the the state is actually seeing a bit of a drop in numbers in recent weeks. Um, so it saw that kind of. Bump that a lot of states saw, I think, earlier this summer, and then has had a few a few weeks of decline here. So we're seeing about 500 to 600 or so cases a day. So still work to be uncertainly, um, but it's an improvement over where things were about a month ago.
0: How is Governor Wolf being perceived? right now, is there, I haven't heard much discussion, you know, among the many governors whose names have become sort of regular in the news cycle. He's been a little bit low profile, huh?
1: Right, you're not hearing the same sort of, you know, especially for a state like Pennsylvania, which clearly we know is a swing state and you have people with very strong views on both sides, you're not necessarily hearing the same sort of um, rhetoric or, or seeing the same degree of protests that maybe you are in some other states. I think in part, you know, Pennsylvania has a lot of similar policies to other tri-state area states in terms of there's mandatory masks, but it, it is not as strict at this point as New York. Um, I believe there is indoor dining to a certain percent, I think maybe 25% um, capacity and outdoor dining. So there's there's some concessions that maybe have helped the governor from getting that kind of strong response that we're seeing in some places.
0: So last Friday, I had a wonderful conversation with Addison Francois and Sam Montano about the DNC convention. Um, I, you both had the somewhat harder assignment this week, perhaps to um, follow every minute of the GOP convention. Um, and I sort of want to just start in a general way, find out what you thought were headlines coming out of the convention. I know you both watched it as, as we, before we went on, you both copped to the fact that you watched all of it, which, um, well done. And so let's hear a little bit about what were the, the sort of high headlines, top level kind of things. Colleen, let's start with you and then Bersha.
1: I think the one that just comes top of mind for me and just really sums a lot of it up is Make America Great Again, Again. I think so much of what we we're seeing had this, strange dichotomy of things that we heard in 2016. A lot of the speeches covered and almost could have been cut and pasted from what we heard back then about law and order and and what the Democrats will do if they take power and, and how things would change. But clearly the difference in this case is that we have had three years of a Trump presidency. So it's... Kind of bizarre to talk about what he will do and how he'll fix all these problems that, you know, before he could attribute to President Obama, but now he has been in charge. He said he would do this last time and there's kind of no recognition of the fact that he is an incumbent. At the same time, mm-hmm. then we're seeing people touting everything he has done over the past four years. So that would be maybe the keep America great line that we've heard from him. But to mm-hmm. say make America great again, again, is kind of just this strange for me, like trip of, of what have we been doing the past three years?
0: Yeah, I heard that and I I didn't think about it as clearly as you Obviously, have it. It makes me realize now there should have been another presidency in between, <laughs> and then he should be running for re-election again to really make the MAGA ah uh, sort of
1: exactly like the MAGA. Yeah. Yeah. it wait. <laughs> you know, if if there had been. And i'm sure we will talk about this more if there had been more of an acknowledgement of the coronavirus and the impacts that that has had i think i would understand that statement more because it would be saying oh look at how good we were doing this unavoidable you know terrible tragedy happened but since broadly that was treated as a success that it came here president trump got rid of it good we don't have to worry about that let's get everybody here on the white house lawn with no masks then it's really hard to say, well, make America great again. Again, was it great for a minute in there? What what right. are we talking about?
0: Right. Grisha, what is what was your headline?
2: It partially it's what Colleen just said. So I think two two important headlines. One is they rewrote the history of the last six months and tried to paint the Trump administration response to coronavirus as a complete success. Not just that you know he's managed the crisis or contained the crisis, but that he's actually saved lives and been really active and decisive and done really well. That was something we heard from all the speakers this week. And secondly, I think, even more importantly is what was not said. So among all of the speakers in four nights, there was not one acknowledgement of the fact that more than 180,000 Americans have now died from coronavirus and that even even going into this and knowing what the Trump presidency is like and the frequency with which he lies or admit, uh, omits things or makes misleading statements. Even with that, I was shocked that we ended last night and there was not one mention of it. Um, if you remember, or I don't know if you remember, but he actually criticized Michelle Obama in her pre-taped DNC speech for lowballing the number of deaths, which was a total self-own. And then, of course, former President Obama gave his address live last Wednesday, and he made sure to get the death toll right. It was more than 170,000 by that point, and now a week later, it's more than 180,000. Um, I think. Almost, I think. What did you say at the beginning? About 3,400 Americans died this week alone, just during the just during the RNC. 3,400 Americans died, which is more than the number of Americans who died on 9/11. And the level of pandemic denial that they're trying to get away with is just not even mentioning it. And I think that that's absolutely shocking. And in Trump's 70 minute long speech, which we watched through last night, he didn't even mention coronavirus or COVID-19 once. He called it the China virus twice. And that was all we got from him. So I think those are my top line takeaways.
0: Um, It's amazing. I guess I had not realized that the number was was never discussed. I have you both probably also noted that usage of the past tense was pretty frequent, and even other members of the administration, Larry Kudlow, for example, have been out on media talking this week and, and saying, you know, it was this, it was that. And I, after I heard that, I went back and listened a little more closely. And there's a lot of slippage, um, you know, to sort of, just Colleen, the way you said it too, it's like, we're not really still facing this as an active threat. We're taking credit for victory over over the virus. I wonder, I mean, is that strategic communication or is that just confusion? Or how do you account for, because there's so many different strands here. We want to paint it as a major challenge that Americans went through, but then not give the scale of it, not give the scope of it, not acknowledge something that the minute you turn away from the convention, you're going to see on the headline of every newspaper. It's not like you can shield people from that information. So let's go a little deeper into what you think the strategy was in terms of how to talk about COVID. Colleen, you want to pick that up?
1: Sure. Yeah. I From from my perspective, it it is kind of baffling, right? As you said, this isn't a secret and this also isn't something that you know there, there was a point in the pandemic when a lot of people didn't know anyone who was impacted when this was you know it was worst in New York City which if you watched last night there were a number of attacks on New York City it was it's clearly a place that you know they're holding up as, as a place that has issues so maybe if that was the case, if this was a coastal threat, it would be one thing. But we know right now, the places that are seeing the largest increases are largely smaller communities and rural areas. And it is across the country. I mean, there's a huge spike happening right now in in Iowa. And we heard from multiple elected officials from Iowa, and they talked about the storm that they'd had there recently and, and how great President Trump did on that. And mentioned a few things in there that don't quite jive with what you hear when you talk to residents in the state, but you don't hear anything about the fact that that's a state that didn't have a mask mandate and is now seeing some of the most significant increases, not just in the U.S., but in the world. So it is kind of baffling when you think about the fact that this is something his supporters are dealing with directly in their lives and are you know still facing that the economic impact, if not the actual impact of the virus, it, it feels to me like something that they would want to hear more from their president mm-hmm. on about how he is planning to move forward. And he did mention it in his speech in terms of you know we have this great new test that we're going to put out there. We're going to have a, va- a vaccine by the end of the year. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's something that you know has become politicized enough I guess in the mind of the administration that they they don't want to be open to criticism on it maybe and and that's what I've sort of been able to to think of on my end when I tried to think of what the strategy is here is that they just don't even want to open the door to mm-hmm. acknowledging that in any real way and I think the majority of people who you heard actually even talk about the loss of life were women and women in the Trump family. And I -hmm. I feel like that's a strategic choice in there that you have someone like Ivanka, who I think they look at as can kind of cross over that line and, and reach people who might not necessarily like the president's style. you know, clearly from her speech last night, she was trying to soften him, show him a fatherly figure. So it makes sense to me that they would have her talking about this this devastating loss of life. But at the end of the day, hoping maybe Versha has some some better insight than me because I, I do think it's it's a pretty confusing choice.
0: Versha, what do you what do you think? I hadn't considered this gendered aspect that Ivanka um, and even Mike Pence uh, yeah. in this sense, um, can speak with some measure of empathy, but the president cannot. Uh, empathy can't be, a nuance can't be part of his discussion. For sure. I don't know. Is that, again, is that strategic in some way or is it just the way things shake out when you got Donald Trump behind a podium?
2: I think it's a combination. I do think, um, you know, in Ivanka's speech, for example, and also in Melania's, they both made light of Trump's, like, rage tweets or the tweet storms that he goes on sometimes. They were like, Ivanka was like, I know my my dad's tweets can be unfiltered sometimes, but let's look at the results. Like that was literally her her line and her thing. And I think they used the female members of the family to try to soften him in the public image. Um, But of course, I think they knew that they couldn't authentically get away with Trump, painting Trump as the empathetic person, but they tried, they really tried. And that was something, um, you know, we did a live Slack chat all week on the Now This YouTube during the convention, and one of our guest mm-hmm. commentators was um, a man named Tim Miller, who is the political director of a group called Republican Voters Against Trump. This man is a lifelong Republican. He worked for the Jeb Bush campaign in 2016, and he very much sees Trump as a threat for various reasons. And he observed that we kept hearing all week in segments or in speeches about a supposedly caring, compassionate Trump that we just never see publicly for some reason. So I think that was a strategic choice, even though it doesn't ring true to people. And again, I think for the main speakers, Pence, Melania, Ivanka, and um, the president, I looked at their prepared remarks, I, I watched the speeches live, it's obviously strategic because they were pre-written remarks, right? Right. out that they were the only four speakers to actually directly offer condolences, but they did it in the vaguest terms. Like we offer condolences to people who have lost loved ones um, at this time or during the pandemic, again, not saying actual words and certainly not saying the actual death toll. So I do think that was strategic. Um, But I also will say, they scrambled to put on a virtual convention at the last minute because of the mm. denial that they lived in for so long that they could pull off an in-person convention first in Charlotte, then in Jacksonville. And local officials in both cities and states were like, no, please don't do that. Um, so there was a little bit of scrambling last minute too.
0: The Coming back again to you know this issue of, of the tone at which you could talk about coronavirus, um, there were, uh, flashes of anger about it. But what I observed is that that was almost always um, overlapping with, uh, with the racist char- characterization of it as China virus or other you know, characterizations that, you know, may have been out there. So I want to, let's open that a little bit and how you thought that the convention overall and individual speakers talked about race and how they talked about COVID. It seemed like COVID was a Trojan horse and, in some of these speeches to then open up discussion about you know race and about enemies of the United States. And, and clearly China was trying to infect us. And in a minute, I'll give one of the quotes that Trump gave about about the so-called China virus. But I, let, me, let me hear from you both about how you thought race was playing through this. Marsha, could you, could you start?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right. That's a great observation. They only, the anger that we saw was blaming the crisis squarely on China. It's all China's fault, China let it get out of control. Trump did the right thing by acting early and banning people visiting from China, even though of course the policy the policy timeline on that does not match up with what they claim it is. Um, but in terms of race, I think what, what was also shocking was the number of, um, I mean the diversity that you saw on the stage this week and in the speaker lineup does not reflect the diversity of the Republican party. They really used, black and brown people essentially as props. And we actually know this because if you watched um, the naturalization ceremony that Trump did at the White House on Tuesday night with five immigrants from various countries, uh, at least two of those immigrants came out the next day to the Wall Street Journal and said, we didn't know we were gonna be part of the convention. I mean, that is, that's like textbook example of using somebody as a prop, not even telling them what partisan political purpose you're using them for. So there was that, there was the number of black speakers without any real acknowledgement of systemic racism and police brutality, which is aside from coronavirus, the number one issue plaguing our country right now. It's, it's the other thing that everybody has been focused on this summer. And that was also a pattern of denial that we saw from them. So I think, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't have two more different conventions in terms of the RNC and the DNC on many levels but especially in terms of race especially when we look at Joe Biden nominating the first woman of color vice presidential candidate last week and she actually Kamala Harris gave her own speech yesterday where she pointed out that the problems that Republicans ignored this week that of the actual pandemic death toll and systemic racism among police are issues that affect black and brown people disproportionately, and mm-hmm. despite the number of black speakers this week, there was no acknowledgement of that.
0: So that's something we've talked a lot about on COVID calls with different guests, that the startling reality that George Floyd also had coronavirus yes. before he was murdered tells us everything we need to know about this, as you said, Russia, I think quite you know very well, this convergence, these two things have to now be taken as one disaster. But I I didn't see that connection in the convention this week. Um, They didn't bring those two together. And, and, you know, discussions of race, again, there was about the Chinese invader, and then, you know, sort of dark, ominous tones of what happens in inner cities in America. Colleen, did you pick up on other clues as to how the convention was managing the discussion about race?
1: Sure. I think one thing that stood out to me last night is as Versha said, you know, you saw a, a fairly diverse lineup of people speaking, but then when they cut to the crowd shots, the the crowd was an entirely white crowd. And I believe but from from my recollection recollection, it was the same the other nights that did those live events. So it's, you know, you, you see it there. It's, it's what you're being shown, what's pre-recorded, what has been put together versus what this day-to-day reality is like. And I think something that stood out to me on that front as well is the number of times we heard about how the president is not racist. That was something, you know, there was no real talk of of policies, but there was multiple, there were multiple people who just kind of threw it into the conversation where they'd say, oh, and also, you know, people are going to, I I believe Nikki Haley, the first night said it's fashionable for Democrats to say people are racist now. So it, it was, Interesting to see that clearly. It's something that is front of mind, but instead of digging into it in any sort of meaningful way, it was a you know take us out of at our word. Look at this lineup. We have you know a a diverse group of people. How could we be racist? And also, we're going to tell you that just flat out to get that out of the way.
0: Mm. And and it intersects also with the argument that I guess we've all heard our whole lives if you've followed of GOP politics, that the real racist um, is the uh, the white liberal who points out racism. And right. I thought the emphasis on cancel culture, yes. which is pretty fringy, I mean, you know, as something to try to get people riled up about and pulling down Civil War statues. I mean, the polling, I've looked at that. There's not any significant opposition to that. I guess it makes good, you know, copy and, and maybe it's discussed in, in some right wing venues. But um, again, that seemed to be another uh, lens through which to talk about race was that, you know, what you were just saying, Colleen, the real risk you face is that you will be called a racist, and that's why you can't have Joe Biden. Were were either of you surprised at how much emphasis there was on this? idea that the big bad college professor, which I guess is me, is gonna somehow cancel you. I, I found that very strange
1: I I think something that's been interesting to me throughout the past few months when we have had, you know, this omnipresent real significant threat to the American people with coronavirus and I mean, at this point, the the fires that we're seeing, the hurricanes, these these things that are really matters of life and death is how often that conversation has come up. And I think a lot of it is kind of a very, um, you, you know, you called it fringe. And I think that's absolutely true. I think it's something that is very vocal on the internet. But I think we saw multiple instances throughout this week, where there were kind of, like the throw a bone to these internet communities. Um, you know, there there were multiple times when people mentioned phrases that clearly were intended for an audience who maybe believes in QAnon. The president recently was pretty complimentary about people who follow that belief, which we know is dangerous and, and radical and has inspired people to do actual harm to each other in real life off the internet. So I think it is kind of catering to this very specific base perhaps. And I think on the other side of that, it's not that offensive to other people who don't really care about it. They probably might've been surprised to hear it so much, but I think the idea of the sort of you go to college and you become liberal and and all of that, I, I think that's something that is widely accepted within the party at this point so maybe they don't care about it enough to cast a vote on it but for the people who do it's it's really saying hey we see you and we see what you're doing online and we're paying attention to that too Mm -hmm.
0: people that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking to Versha Sharma and Colleen Haggerty about the GOP convention this week. Versha did you want to come in on anything about the the cancel culture theme and the toppling of statues and everything that was talked about in that regard this week?
2: Yeah I mean it's it's another way I think um, in which they are telling people to ignore the evidence of your eyes and your ears because if you saw Covington kid. Nick Sandman speak on Tuesday night. First the fact that they gave him a speaking slot, right? That shows you their emphasis on cancel culture. And also he on national television, on a huge stage for a convention that's only held every four years talked about being canceled. I and mean, it's like, what, what is being canceled if somebody like you is being given this platform? Like That's the opposite of being canceled, actually. You're being mainstreamed, you're being amplified. So I did think that was strange. Um, I think Colleen also hit on something that is a big summary of the week, which is that the programming and the speeches were um, aimed at Fox News viewers and these internet communities and at Trump's base they didn't make a strong play for expanding his base at all this week. All, all of the content was really red meat for that base, um, including Mike Pence telling you that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden want to tell you how many hamburgers you can eat. Like, like there's going all in on that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but I also wanted to point out an intersection between the pandemic and racism mm-hmm. with the crowd that Colleen rightly said, the, I think 1,500 people at the White House last night for Trump and Ivanka's speech who were largely maskless. Um, You didn't see any masks when people were on camera and it was a largely white crowd. And then come to today, there's a big march on Washington today led by racial justice activists. And it's a huge crowd and they're all wearing masks and so, to me, the optics of this white crowd inside the gates without masks, not caring that they, this might be a super spreader event that they're participating in, versus the people outside the White House gates who were calling for justice but still trying to protect each other and wear masks—I mean, that just that the optics and, and the meaning of that really stood out to me.
0: What a remarkable insight uh, in in that regard and. And also, you know, thinking about the, the degree to which the protests that we've seen from all corners of the United States, how frequently the protesters were wearing you know, some PPE protection and, and not just to protect them from police use of tear gas, but because they were there in that sort of mutual aid of, of care. Um, it did seem to me, I mean, they know that when they go to that crowd shot at Fort McHenry and people are not socially distant and they're not wearing masks, uh, I mean, there's just no masks available in Baltimore that night. Now, I mean that is that is part of the argument. But again, I mean it comes back to this this point you know that that you just made about they want you to not believe literally what you see with your eyes. I mean they they want us I, I'm still sort of puzzling through this. When you see that crowd shot,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you're supposed to then think, oh, it's over everything's fine and the media is lying to us? Or are we supposed to think, no, Republicans are just realistic people, tough people, and we don't want to hear anymore about these, you know, cancel culture crybabies who rely on their, on their mask. Is is that what we're trafficking in with those kinds of images? Because they're clearly planned.
1: Yeah. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I was gonna say, I think that's exactly right. And like you mentioned Kudlow's comments earlier talking about in the past tense, like, yeah, they want you to believe that the crisis is over, the pandemic is over, we can get back to the business of reopening our schools, businesses and the economy, and that everything's fine. And I just, I don't know that that is a strategy that is going to work for them because I don't think Americans at large are ignoring the everyday realities that they're facing public health and economic hardship i think that's a very hard thing to deny and, um i wanted to point out one of the senators who was in the white house crowd last night not wearing a mask um senator tom tillis from north carolina actually had to apologize today for mm, not wearing like a mask because enough mm. of his constituents were angry at him and mm. asking about it oh, um safe. and he actually has worn a mask in the past and and, and said that he supports it but mm. once he gets in in trump area. He goes along with what the president wants, which was not wear a mask, but he's getting blasted for it. So I think that's interesting. And that's something it's, I mean, it's good to see people holding their representatives accountable for sure, but it's another, it's more evidence. I think that I don't know that this strategy of outright denial is going to work for them.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, it must have been instructions on the chair when you sat down. I mean, it <laughs> might've literally said something like, you know, we prefer that you don't, don't wear the mask. I want to, um, I want to ask, there was a couple of moments that it did seem, I I agree with in in the main what you're saying, that the audience was was a pre-selected, pretty small slice of America, I think, for these four nights. There did seem to be a couple of moments when they were reaching for a broader audience, and I thought that was in some of the set pieces, one of which you already mentioned, which was the naturalization ceremony, which under maybe different circumstances from a different administration would have been a really exciting thing to see at a convention, really broke with um, tradition, Uh, one wonders what manner of Hatch Act violations were involved in that, and whether or not it was legally binding, (laughs) I don't know. Um, That one, and then the discussion with the essential workers. And I want to talk more a little bit about both of these. So what did you think about these moments as an attempt to try to soften the administration, show it as a little bit more? open-hearted, open-handed? Do you think they worked or not? Colleen, let me start with you on that.
1: Sure, I think one thing that that comes to mind for me when we're talking about outreach beyond the base that we've been largely talking about so far is how in 2016, there was a moment in Trump's speech where he talked about Bernie Sanders and how the Democratic Party had rigged the election and how mm-hmm. he was welcoming Bernie Sanders voters in with open arms. And then last night we heard him call him crazy Bernie. So there definitely has been a shift in who I think they are reaching out to at this point. And I think Versha mentioned before talking about trying to show the softer side of the president without having him be the person to show it was definitely apparent. And I think when we look at the set piece of him speaking with first responders, you can see that it's it's not his comfort zone in there. I mean, <laughs> It it did not feel that's the same. Very way.
0: kind. That's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I don't mean to cut you
1: off. Yeah. No, I I think it's it's something that, you know, I think a lot of what we've talked about has been you not believing what you see or believing what you hear or what you know to be true that's right in front of you. And I think some of those moments are to kind of cover those bases and say, oh, well, we did talk about coronavirus, we did celebrate our heroes who got us through that difficult time that thankfully is now over. Mm -hmm. Certainly, that was all part of that same strategy there to really say, you know, go against the criticisms that Trump is a bully, that he doesn't have empathy, while allowing him in his speech to criticize Joe Biden for being empathetic, which was part of some of his many attacks on him. So, I I think the set pieces being as, you know, kind of very like, um, I I saw someone compare them to like a Michael Bay movie trailer, a lot of them, the way they were edited, where none of it quite felt like you were there. It didn't have that kind of, you know, a lot of the democratic convention, it did feel like you were kind of on this large Zoom call with a bunch of people who you knew. This being so heavily produced I think there was kind of like a wall that went up when you were watching something that had been, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Mike Pence's moment when, when he did kind of almost what felt like an infomercial where he was talking to people as well. Mm-hmm. It's this very stylized and very produced moment that for me takes you out of it and maybe strips away mm-hmm. some of the authenticity because you can see how clearly this was planned and how, you know, somewhere on on some bulletin board, there's the themes of, okay, empathy, coronavirus is over. And mm-hmm. the people who I'm assuming they're, they're reaching out to in that case are people who want voting for President Trump a second time to maybe be an easier pill to swallow because maybe they haven't liked what he's tweeted. and right. They wanted him into office. They thought it would change. And I, I remember talking to a number of people who said that, where they weren't a huge fan of the man, but they liked his policies, where they just didn't like Hillary Clinton. And I think when they are trying to just present him in this way, it it kind of gives some some comfort or some shielding to people who aren't a fan of him but want his policies perhaps. And and here they can say, oh well, you know, he he did the thing that he needed to do. He was the nice guy in this case, or they did address that. So you can't say they ignored it.
0: Gersha in the essential workers one, which I wouldn't ordinarily do this, but I think people should seek out that video if they didn't if they didn't watch it at least just to watch the first minute of it, where, where he gives the voiceover, starting by saying, "When the China virus invaded, I won't do an impression, but when the China virus invaded our country, we launched the greatest mobilization of American society since World War II. Patriots rallied to defeat the invisible enemy. It was like watching the History Channel." And then it again, it's very jarring. And next thing you know, you're you're in a room. In the White House, and you have these essential workers on both sides of him, like a receiving line. Yeah. And they were not, they were socially distant, but not far enough. Nobody was wearing a mask. I wondered if that was also in some way a, a, a talk back to Biden's attempt to do these sort of mini town halls last week, but they were done in video. So he was by himself. So everybody was was separated by video. I don't know, I'm still trying to piece together what they were hoping to accomplish with these. What, what, what was your take?
2: Yeah, I think the optics of that are exactly right. Joe Biden would sit in a room by himself and have five or six people on screens and, and that's how he communicated with them. And after his big speech where he accepted the nomination on Thursday, uh, he immediately put on a mask. And so did his wife when she came out and so did Senator Harris and her husband. These are things we just don't see with any regularity from Republican elected officials. So I think it goes back to the point of like pretending that we conquered this, we're ready to move on. Let's thank our essential workers and frontline healthcare workers and heroes. Um, And I do appreciate that they acknowledged those workers who are incredibly important at this time, Mm -hmm. but what is acknowledgement without taking meaningful steps to actually protect them, right? In these segments where they're not wearing masks or they're not social distancing a minimum of six feet. Um, I was surprised to see um, the doctors and nurses who spoke at the convention. And again, I triple checked, rewatched footage and transcripts. Even the doctors and nurses who spoke did not mention the death toll. Uh, there was one doctor on, on Monday night who talked about um, Trump's support for, rapid support for different cures, of course, ignoring all of the drama around hydroxychloroquine. And he's actually a Shreveport phys- physician where my sister um, lives and she's a doctor there as well. So I wanted to know, I was like, who is this person? What's going on? What's the backstory? And it was it was interesting because um, this man, Dr. Golly, is actually very much in favor of mask mandates He supported the Shreveport mayor and the Louisiana governor when they tried to enforce mask mandates, which of course we know Trump does not agree with. Um, He said things after Trump made comments about masks not being important, like it's ridiculous for anybody to not wear a mask. So if you look at this man, the speaker's backstory, you actually learn where he really stands on the coronavirus. But Mm. if you only see him through the three minutes of screen time that he had at the RNC, you would think this is somebody who is in complete lockstep with Trump, who supports everything that he's done and continues to do. And I just think that is a very strange thing to me. And I'm not sure why he agreed to give that speech Um, I'm guessing maybe he's, he's a Republican and he, and he just supports them. But I, I just, that felt bizarre to me to see actual doctors and nurses talking about this, like, like we've done everything right.
0: It's interesting. I I hadn't heard that story. And of course there's a lot of, just back to what you were saying earlier about the naturalization ceremony, there's a lot of like. Tricks and and maybe some uh, hijinks and and some trust. I think when you agree to participate in one of these conventions, you don't really know unless you're one of the keynote speakers. I think even a lot of the lesser speakers that do shorter spots, they may not know where they're going to get slotted, how the production is going to look. So they're probably basically trusting. Yeah, you've got my back. The story about the doctor—that's a really that's a really interesting one. Um, I want to we we want to leave time to talk about the main event, which was last night, I guess. Um, The, uh,
2: how long was it? 70 minutes.
0: Okay. Um, Speech uh, that happened. And um, I want to start with kind of a lightning round with you both on the, um, just fact checking some of the things that the president said about COVID-19. So um, he talked about the case fatality rate, you don't hear that from the media, he said, but he talked about the case fatality rate. He said the United States um, does very well compared to Europe with the case fatality rate. Either one of you want to take that one? Why does he talk about the case fatality? Yeah, why do, why does he bring that up but not other kinds of statistics?
1: I remember he was confronted about that um, during an Axios interview, I think about a month right, right, right. back. And it, it it just doesn't. I mean, it doesn't accurately represent how many people in this country currently have coronavirus. It's you know, it, it reminds me of when he talks about the the testing numbers and how we have the most testing here and our testing rates are higher than other places. And y- you have to look at this in terms of the fact that our problem is larger than than these countries that he's comparing us to. So when he picks out these statistics, it's not accurately showing people just how widespread our problem here is. You know, it's finding a way to kind of cherry pick data that maybe doesn't scare people as much as hearing what a real threat there is.
0: So then he talks about the um, heroic delivery of the PPE and the uh, using materials from the strategic national stockpile. Versha, what's wrong with that claim?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean that, again, another one that just is mind-boggling to me because I I spent the first month or so um, after the national emergency was declared reporting specifically on Trump's refusal to invoke the Defense Production Act. And again, it was just completely bizarre to me at the time that he has this tool at his disposal that would allow him to more quickly address um, the pandemic and this was at a time when New York hospitals were completely overwhelmed and you were seeing those horrible images of um, having to have additional trucks for all of the dead bodies that were happening in New York and, and Surgeons and, and doctors making their own PPE out of makeshift materials because they couldn't get to it in time So again, it feels like he's trying to memory hole us. He's trying to make us forget that that ever happened um, even though it was only a couple of months ago And he dragged his feet on invoking the Defense Production Act for some time, never fully invoking it in the way that it could be used for that stockpile from the strategic reserve. Um, And we also found out that the reason for that was because they were working with private contractors to try to award them the contracts for manufacturing PPE and ventilators. So of course, you know, he treated it as a business proposition because that's how he views all of his policies. But again, the fact that this was happening with PPE for people, life-saving equipment, um, it is it is just rewriting history again.
0: I really and wish I had, had both sad. of you on. Go ahead, Colleen. I mean, just to have that one minute correction last night would have been so crucial, I think. Again, maybe assuming that there were people watching who could take in a counterpoint and think it through and say i don't know maybe that wasn't available but we have to do that kind of fact check colleen i cut you off there i'm sorry
1: sure. no no i i think something that's important to add when versus talking about you know the the effort back in in march and april when everything started is the fact that certainly we are in a better place now than we were then but we are absolutely not in a place where we can afford for things to go wrong much more than they are right now. I think my my home state of California is seeing horrible fires right now. And normally if you're in a fire impacted area, you would get an N95 mask from the Red Cross. They don't have that. So you you see these impacts that come out from the fact that we did scramble, we bought up everything we could, we still are not producing the amount that we need to. And the head of FEMA was on, um, was in Congress about a month ago, I think. At this point, and mm-hmm. spoke about what they're doing at this point. And a part of, one of the things he said was, "We'll be ready for the next disaster." I can't give you a timeline of when we'll be manufacturing what we're what we need, but we will be ready. And I mean, those next disasters are happening right now. We're seeing people who are des- desperately in need of this to take care of the smoke that's in the air because the a chemical plant is on fire in Louisiana. I mean, it's. There's there's need now, and we aren't meeting that capacity. So it's it's a dangerous framing to say that this is over. And you know, we took these historic steps when that need is is absolutely ongoing.
0: One more fact check from the the speech, and I'll throw this up. Either of you can can grab this uh, if you want to. And that was his point. Actually, this came up throughout the whole convention, but he really harped on it last night. The travel ban the travel ban from China that saved many, many lives. I don't have the quote in front of me, but once again, coming back to, to that, can we fact check that?
1: Yeah, Virsh, I, I think you mentioned it earlier, so I'll let you. Yeah,
2: yeah uh, this is like, I have to get my colleague, Alan Piper, this is like his biggest his, his issue. It's something that Trump brings up in almost every speech. He has written out an entire timeline. I can drop it in the comments of, of what actually happened, but it's just, um, you know, what they constantly claim, what Trump himself has claimed, is that the travel restrictions saved a lot of lives and reduced the COVID-19 um, cases to a, quote, a very small number. But we we don't have that data that proves that. Um, and we know that they dragged their feet on it because, again, Trump didn't declare a national emergency until March 13th. So the Health and Human Services Secretary declared a public health emergency um, on January 31st. And uh, the travel restrictions, partial travel restrictions to and from China went into effect a couple days later. It was a whole nother month before Trump um, announced any other travel restrictions. Um, and then we got into the US's banning travel to Europe as well, I, and I just think the, the easiest way to look at the efficacy of the travel bans versus um, just the timeline which they do get wrong and, and rewrite a lot is the fact that now in August, Americans are banned from going to a number of countries. And this was something Senator Amy Klobuchar said in an interview with us last week from Minnesota, of course. And she's like, I, you know, he talks about building this wall that was a huge part of his 2016 campaign. He still talks about it. I can't drive over the border into Min- into Canada right now, right? Um, without some restrictions or, or testing or whatever it may be. So I think it's yeah. remarkable that the president who ran on keeping people out has gotten us to the point where we're being kept in and we can't leave. And I just, you know, I mean, what is, what is more, That's what amazing. can more than that?
0: That's amazing. Yeah. COVID built the wall. It, yeah.
2: and, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Around us. Yeah.
0: And even the use of the term travel ban, it, to me, it it's for them, it's a reflex, yeah. but it's not a travel ban. It's a series of travel restrictions that has been, from my understanding, a, a moving, you know, tapestry of things that, and also have been, at least early on, very poorly regulated and very poorly enforced because there wasn't enough personnel to actually do the necessary work to enforce them. Um, but the use of that term ban in the context of imagining, this is what I think is, again, going on at this rhetorical level, yeah. that you want people to envision very quickly um, scary people from outside, non-white people, and we ban them. It must not must not come. So in the sense, when he talks about the coronavirus ban, I feel like he may as well be talking about the wall itself. I mean, he's just invoking all of those other feelings that he wants to inspire. Again, maybe I've got Trump on the couch, you know, psychoanalyzing too much. I don't know. Am I giving him too much credit for strategic communication here, Colleen? What do you think?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, ban is certainly a word he has used since 2015 when he's talked about outsiders is is we need to ban people we need to ban people from certain countries i can't i can't hear someone talk about the wall without also mentioning you know for as much as we heard discussion about the wall this week that he he has not fulfilled that promise as he put it out there by any means with what he's done on that border and it's it's kind of all to the point i i I can't remember who the speaker was last night but someone said he kept all of his promises and i think there's just that's an easy fact check if (laughs) if we had a lot more time but i i think there's absolutely strategy behind a lot of this and whether it's from the president himself or from his advisors there are words that they know hit that chord with their base and ban is certainly one of them
0: Mind, people, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with Gersha Sharma and Colleen Haggerty about the GOP convention. We're almost up on time. Maybe we can get a couple more uh, questions and in in our discussion. And if you want to get a question in, you can put it into the YouTube live chat or put it up on Twitter. Just tag at US of disaster. So um, the other thing I, before we lose it, um, Colleen, I know um, you uh, keep up with disasters and and you have a newsletter. I wasn't Maybe you could say a little bit about that and then as a way to say how you thought that backdrop of the fires in California and the approach of, the, of Hurricane Laura, as well as what was happening in Kenosha. I mean, again, we have this convergence of disaster as the constant backdrop to the convention. How, did that, how was that registered? How did it play? What, what did you think about the ways that that amplified themes of the convention or just wasn't there? So sure. tell
1: us about the newsletter first. Yeah. So I've covered disasters throughout the course of my career, both from a local news standpoint up to a national and international news. And I, in in my freelance career, really saw just kind of a need to provide more context around what I think people typically see in disaster coverage, which is, you know, maybe a week leading up to something, talking about it a bit, it, you know, wall to wall coverage of a storm as it happens, people stick around for maybe a month, they'll come back a year later, and then it kind of falls off. And the the people who I speak to when I go to these places, I mean, some of their worst days tend to be very much in the gray area of, it's not necessarily the day after something happens when they're in shock or they're receiving aid and and people are coming and stepping up and helping them. Maybe it's a year and a half later, maybe it's just some odd number of months later. And I don't think people tend to, to understand what can be done beforehand, how policies that we're putting into effect are impacting the disasters that we're seeing as well as when it happens, what happens next and how that fundamentally changes the demographics of the place, the people who have been impacted. So through my newsletter, I really wanted to kind of create a space to talk about all of these sort of different issues that happen around the disasters that maybe you've only heard the headlines or seen the, the name Hurricane Laura, but didn't mm-hmm. know sort of some of the intricacies and history of a place that have taken us to the point we're at now. So with that said, um, you know, I I think again, as I mentioned, I'm from California and I in no way thought that California was gonna be painted in a shining light during this convention. But I, I do think when you're seeing some of the the biggest wildfires that we've ever seen, two of them happening at once, it's it's pretty extraordinary to really not mention that except for to hit on politicians about blackouts with the heat. I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking, really, to allow that to happen. I know the, the Democratic Convention did have California Governor Gavin Newsom speak, and that well, was... He spoke from a place that was... Right. right. Yeah. He, he had um, pre-recorded marks, remarks planned and then actually chose to redo those, even though it was going to be a taped event, because I think it was important for him to show that he was involved in, in this recovery process and paying attention to it. So you know, California maybe is one thing, but then the fact that there is a hurricane happening during this convention that was hitting states that, you know, we were hearing from politicians in these states, right. and to have so little mention of it besides our hearts are with these people, We're we have your back. I mean, it's, we don't know pretty much anything about this administration's policies on how they plan to move forward from this moment where there's disaster declarations in every state we don't know what they what they're going to do from here when it comes to handling disasters in the future and certainly they have seen some some horrible ones during these 4 years and you didn't hear anything about hurricane maria you didn't hear anything about hurricane harvey these are moments that you know you you would expect a president to acknowledge when you've had catastrophic, historic events in your presidency, and I think it just goes to show that that's not a priority to this administration to address this in any actionable way, not even to get into the threat of climate change and and what's that what that is doing.
0: I uh, thank you for those insights, and that really helps me see it more clearly, and it resonates also with you know in general the way I think this did come up um, in general, the way he has talked about disasters in his presidency is whether or not he gets credit yeah. for getting relief there in time. Um, so, you know, and it feels if a, if a governor doesn't give him credit, the only thing a democratic governor can do to redeem themselves is to mm-hmm. offer him some public credit,
2: yeah.
0: um, for some assistance. Although I guess he sees Newsom as un, irredeemable but, um, and even Republican governors can get on the wrong side of him if they don't if they don't um, thank him effusively enough. What a strange dynamic through which yeah, to see we, FEMA.
1: We did see, you know, the, the governor of Iowa thanking him for the aid that he granted, saying he did this record time and he granted everything. Yeah. Meanwhile, the, I mean-
0: yeah, Not record time, it was
1: slow. And it wasn't a full, yeah. right. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, it's blatantly untrue. And it's, for me, having, I, I was working on a story about Iowa at that moment, and hearing from people on the ground who have no idea what to do right now because of so many structural complications not just with the government but with you know organizations like the red cross that are navigating covid-19 it, it kind of feels insulting to say we gave it to everyone when it's it's provably not true it's right there in front of you
0: we find your newsletter at kalleenhaggerty.substack.com is that yeah right?
1: thank you
0: great everybody should check that out so um as we as we head out of our discussion i guess i'd like to um, hear from each of you uh how much this matters for to me in doing this daily podcast about COVID 19 it certainly matters because i thought this was the real this was the most condensed uh sort of discussion from the party that i had heard and there's all this you know, random discussions and some daily briefings and things here and there, but the GOP has not been on message around COVID-19. So this I thought was closest we were gonna get to a kind of a, a univocal uh, sort of take, What does it meant? And I think you've both interpreted it for us really, really well, um, but in a broader sense, does the convention matter or how does it matter? Trump is consistently 40 to 42% approval He's about 90% approval with Republicans, although interestingly, the last time I looked, he has only 57% approval in terms of how he's handling the coronavirus with Republicans. That's maybe an important statistic. Maybe the goal was to move that 57 closer to the 90. I'm not quite sure what they're looking for in success out of this uh, convention. Doesn't seem like you can do much to move his overall approval rating. So I guess I'd like to hear from both of you, since you cover politics so closely, what should the GOP be expecting out of this convention? What can they hope for? In what sense does it does it matter? Um, Versha, can I start with you about this?
2: Yeah. So I think traditionally uh, there is. A, a post-convention bounce can be a real thing for either the incumbent president or um, his opposing candidate, depending on circumstances at the time. But obviously we're living through a very untraditional election year. So I can't really predict what will ha- what will happen in terms of polling after this, but I think um, we shouldn't necessarily expect that he'll get a bounce. He, he will among his base, of course, but when we're looking at national polling or uh, d- democratic and independent and third party voting, um, I would be very surprised if he made any headway there. And in fact, I think uh, given what we've talked about in terms of significant omissions, pandemic deaths, climate change, climate policy, and uh, structural racism, like I think these things can really hurt him. So um, in terms of how much this matters, I feel like, Two things, what we saw, we saw the, their strategy this week and their strategy is just mass disinformation and hoping that lying enough and repeating the lies enough um, will be sufficient for people to not look up fat checks or you know um, try, to, try to see if they're telling the truth or not. And again, I think that's true for his base. There was a disturbing poll, I think it was CBS News last week Um, that asked, like, do you think 170,000 deaths from COVID-19 are acceptable? And it was a majority of Republican voters said, yes, we think this is acceptable. And a very small slice of Democratic voters said yes, and a small slice of independent voters said yes. So that exposes how successfully, unfortunately, they've politicized and polarized the electorate um, on the issue of COVID-19, where you have a majority of Republicans who think that our debts, even though it's higher than anywhere else in the world and we're the wealthiest country in the world, Mm. um, is acceptable. I mean, I think that's shocking, but I think that's absolutely their goal is to continue to convince people that he's done as much as he can. What we're facing right now is acceptable enough to give him another four years. Um, Again, whether or not that's true, whether or not that's enough, I don't know. Um, But I mean, I think the Biden campaign is, learning, or I hope hope they've learned from some of the mistakes of 2016 in terms of their focus on voters. But I think more importantly, the the DNC showed that they are willing to take on these issues in a way that the Republicans are not. Um, And I do think that that's going to break through to people. We do do also see polling that people believe that Biden is better to handle systemic race issues than Trump is, even though they tried to convince us he's not racist this week. The polling doesn't reflect that. Um, so I'm hopeful that Americans will pay attention to reality, but we'll see. We'll find out very soon.
0: Just one thing, virtually let me stick with this for, for a second, that this issue about the, the acceptable acceptability of the number of deaths, that is, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. So that helps us maybe see a lot of this pretty clearly that the extent to which they were talking about COVID-19 this week, it was really to try to staunch any leading of GOP core support in some crucial state, you know, like he just can't afford to lose any more voters in Michigan or Pennsylvania, Florida, or Arizona. And is, that issue seems to be one where they expect they could be losing voters. So they got to stop that. And then on the racial violence issue, to the point you were just making, is it the perception that the campaign is is losing voters on that on that issue?
2: I think uh, there was an interesting piece about white suburban women voters who their their views have changed from twenty sixteen, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, now Democrats haven't won a majority of the white vote since nineteen sixty eight. So when you see some misleading newscasts who talk about, you know, how important some of these voting blocks are, just remember that that hasn't happened for decades since they supported and passed the Civil Rights Act, which is very telling. Um, but there, there were interesting interviews in a conservative news site called The Bullwark um, who said they spoke to white suburban swing voters in Arizona, and I wanna say Pennsylvania, um, who are looking at how Biden and Trump are responding to this crisis and they're, they're noticing the difference, absolutely. And I think, again, the strategy that we saw from the r and is trying to paint Democrat run cities as questions right. of crime and chaos. Um, and of course the racial undertones that go along with that. But I mean, that that's gonna work for their base. It's not gonna work for swing voters necessarily or independents. Um, so I do think there's actually room that the Biden campaign can can make up there. And and that's that'll be interesting.
0: Colleen, I guess the last word to you. What what does this convention matter? What are what are the things that are gonna come out of it that we might look back on election day and say, yeah, that was a turning point in August.
1: Right. I think Versha really hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, this is a I've seen some people online who maybe tuned in this year and hadn't other years because of just the novelty of this being live streamed, Mm -hmm. who said, oh, I didn't realize conventions were just kind of very long infomercials for the parties. And certainly there is a huge degree of that. But I think what's really notable about Republican convention is that they don't have a party platform this year so what we saw this week was pretty much them announcing what their party platform was so I think while the Democrats have you know these policies that they put out I think at one point it was President Trump who was kind of poking fun at Biden for having like a significantly long policy published out there um what, what oh, yeah, we're 100, 110 page yeah. policy paper. Yes. So this, this is it. So I think what we're going to look back on is some of the lines that they feel like hit some of the moments that they feel like hit and that that's, what's going to be seized on from here through November. And, you know, there was a lot of repetition of law and order. We heard a lot about the economy coming back better than ever, not acknowledging the fact that that, It had a long way to come back up because it fell so significantly. So I think this is the sort of strategy that they sort of showed their hand to a degree in this week saying, here's what we're trying to do something that the administration has always done is kind of throw a lot at the wall and see what sticks. So I think coming out of this week, seeing the moments that maybe did strike a chord, they're gonna be looking at that. They're gonna be watching the cable news shows to see what people are talking about. And then I think we're gonna hear those points just kind of hammered over and over. And I would be very surprised if that sort of law and order narrative doesn't take hold again, because I think it is something that they believe was successful in 2016.
0: I thought Kristen Urquiza last week was a kind of a breakout yes. for many people unexpected. They didn't know. And I read her father's obituary today. I think her, her two minutes last week to me, were maybe two of the most important minutes of the convention. Did the Republicans have anything like that this week? Somebody who came out unexpected and broke open a new way to think about the party to, to your point, Colleen, that they have no platform. And so this week they're literally just sort of doing like one for day long improvisation session to see what comes, what comes out of it. Did you see anybody emerge from that? I know I've promised I was asking the last question. But <laughs> I more. I pro- this is, We're going to close with this, but I think it.
1: Yeah. I'm interested in your versus thoughts. There's no one I can think of that really seemed to have a moment that that broke through that much online. I mean, I, I was paying close attention to kind of what was happening on social media during each of these nights. And I, I don't feel like there was any one that sort of had that standout moment where it was kind of like the, you wake up the next morning and it's the must watch that everyone's talking about, the way that the Democrats had that. I mean, I, I think they did have a few moments where they had family members who had lost loved ones to a variety of instances um, that, you know, the Trump administration is is saying they'll address. And I think that's always a powerful moment to hear from someone who lost a loved one, but I, I don't know if I looked at that and saw any of their responses and felt like that's something that would motivate someone to the ballot box, the way that when you hear someone saying, you know, this direct policy, the way that the Democrats were able to, you know, this is a direct correlation from this person to this person, and how I lost a loved one. I, I, don't, I can't think of a moment that sort of really hit that home in a visceral way from this convention.
0: Versha, did you see anything out of this? Somebody who broke their broke open into the political consciousness this week.
2: I, I completely agree. I don't, I don't think there was anybody who wow. did, um, especially wow. to the extent that Kristen Arkeza did.
0: Don, um, Donald Trump
2: Jr. is not. Yeah. Not in love <laughs> I was gonna say, if you want to talk about, you know, rising stars or who's considered 2024 front runners, yeah. right? Tom Cotton spoke last night, and I don't think anybody's talking about him like that. Except he went against China in his speech. Of course he did, but I don't think even that broke through. Right? I mean, yeah. and that's probably not surprising after the president followed it up with a 70 minute speech, but I don't think that broke <laughs> through. That's it.
0: Yeah, that's, <laughs> the, that's the paperweight at the end of everything, I guess.
2: One thing I do want to point out um, probably the person who got closest was the widow of David Dorn, who is a retired police officer right. um, who was killed. in during protests that turned violent this summer and her story is incredibly sad. And I think that her message and her video was, was very powerful. Like, you feel her loss. Absolutely. But then in typical Republican convention fashion, when you look at her story and context, they undercut their own message because David Dorn's daughters came out and said, Dorn was not a Trump supporter. Our dad did not support Trump and he would not want his death to be politicized in this way. And they were upset that his, uh, his wife chose to speak in that way. So again, you just get back to the question of, who they actually see as people, who they see as props, what issues they really care about. And I just don't think I can say it enough. They didn't make any compelling case that they care about the loss of American lives this week. They didn't even acknowledge it.
0: Well, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you so much for the interpretive power that you brought to seeing this convention through the lens of COVID-19. And I know you'll both be busy on it, try to some way to get you back to talk Around right around the time of the election. Um, As well, Versha, Sharma and Colleen Haggerty, thanks so much for your time today on COVID Calls.
2: Thank you. It's great to talk to you. I
0: want to remind everybody you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Next week, we continue our discussions about uh, education and COVID-19. And everybody, stay healthy. We'll see you Monday, five o'clock. Thanks.